Welcome to Zion Freetown 230. I'm Natasha Leopold. In our story so far, we've talked about a Huntingdonian congregation in Birchtown, Nova Scotia, made up of men and women who journeyed underground or by boat to the north. A people whose imperative in fighting in the American Revolutionary War was born not out of loyalty to a crown, but bound by a fellowship of the free. We've talked about the many who left what land and property they'd eked out in the hostile climes of Canada, willing to set off into the unknown, with little more than sheer fortitude and faith, in the potential for true freedom and economic and societal equity for themselves and for generations to come. One hospital ship and 15 passenger ships carrying 1,200 souls and 1,200 stories left the shores of Halifax, on a long, perilous journey across a vast ocean headed for Sierra Leone. It is recorded that 65 did not survive the journey and were deep at sea. By the time they arrived months later, another 40 succumbed to sickness and died soon after. They marked their arrival in Freetown by a Thanksgiving ceremony under a cotton tree. They named the gathering place Harmony Hall, the early establishment of Zion Church. Before the spring of 1783, the only life Anne and David might have offered their daughter was the one that they had known like their parents before them. One of enslavement and unpaid toil, inherited by the Edmonds family that owned Edmonium tobacco plantations in Fokia County, Virginia, from John King Carter of Lancaster, Virginia. His 1733 will showed that he had over 367 enslaved persons or families on his plantations scattered across 10 counties in Virginia. These were the children and grandchildren of Africans acquired from slave ships arriving in the Maryland, Virginia Bay, forcibly taken from Guinea, as West Africa was called at the time. The Edmonds, David and Anne Edmonds, um, they have, they were part uh, of the early settler story, the Nova, uh, Nova Scotian story in Freetown. And even before that, when uh, the community was back in Canada. So, as you know, um, I started this process looking at our, uh, our family history and doing my best to build a different genealogy trees for different families. Um, so I came to appreciate the um, a family name that's no longer with us, um, the Edmonds, but they were um, critical to the whole story. They were um, important uh, uh, folks in, in all of the pivotal story. And I was able to put a lot of it together and, and managed to even write up a, um, an article, which um, I will share parts of it um, as, I, as we go along. I kind of want to also mention that, I mean, for us to also be today, it's quite interesting to, to find out the different families about the same time that had to have started a journey somewhere. So um, I came to appreciate the Morgans who had to, uh, they had started a journey 
uh, or recorded journey back in Jamaica, but we did, we could be we able to trace them back to the Ashantis. We were able to find the Elliots, which we were able to trace back to their story began also in the 1700s in a plantation in Virginia. Then there is the Taylors whose story began in Abiokuta, Nigeria. Um, and um, on my side, there's also the, um, the, 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 the labels um, whose story actually um, is tied to the Faulkners. And that, that's, that's um, about liberated Africans back in um, the um, 1800s in uh, Waterloo village and the other mountain villages. And then um, there's the Furies whose story starts in York in Free Village in Freetown, but comes from the um, liberated Africans from Nigeria. So it's quite, um, um, it's just, it's to tell these stories, I believe you need to know that other journeys had started the Edmonds' um, own journey um, began. Before the events leading into the transatlantic slave trade, the major activities of the peoples from whom many of our Nova Scotian, Jamaican Maroon and Freetown Creoles descended were centred in three kingdoms, Ghana, Mali and Songhai. Later Western histories are associated with events and access along the coastal areas of West Africa. Around current day Liberia, Ivory Coast, Benin, Cameroon, and the lower parts of Nigeria. But the Islamic world through the trails in the Sahara Desert had connections to the interior regions, Niger, Mali, the upper reaches of Nigeria. The stories of the three kingdoms from the 1400s to the 1700s are largely recorded in the Islamic world and partially in the Spanish world. In the case of, say, Sierra Leone, you need to appreciate the fall of the Mali kingdom and the um, story of one of the fighting forces in the Malian kingdom that was led by a female um, warrior, um, Queen Ma Makariko. She was in charge of um, an army of um, um, many invaders who's, who constantly go ahead uh, to conquer and extend lands. But when, but in the particular case when the Malian kingdom is, was falling and she continued her activities, she had, she had what we call different set of forces. And they were making their way, if you understand the geography of, uh, of West Africa, there's some mountains between um, the Mali, the Guineas, and what we know as uh, the uh, Freetown and the Liberian end of things. So you need to go around the mountains. And her trail of activities from Mali goes round, follows a route that goes through the Ivory Coast, the Liberias into Sierra Leone. And along that trail, she left a lot of fighters whose job were to secure locations. And they had a way of using, of actually using the locals um, once they secure. And that explains the route how they 
today's Mendes in Sierra Leone. They're part of that um, group. So there were, there, I just wanted to make a point that wars from one kingdom explain the origins of say a group of people in Sierra Leone, the Mendes. And all when, the men, when that warring entity arrived in Sierra Leone, that fight and that happened between them and the with the Bulams, the Soso, and the um, Fullers, who by the, who at that time um, used were able to fight on horses and the Soso, because that was where the line was drawn. They would not be able to go any further. That's why today we appreciate that the Mendes are on the southern end, south um, eastern end of Sierra Leone, and you'll find the Teminese and the Sosos in, going into the west, uh, northwestern um, side into Guinea. But that explanation I just provided you of Australia, it's the same way I can ex we can explain the different wars that when these kingdoms were falling and the others in the regions of Benin and um, Nigeria, they all created these opportunities for prisoners. And so when you, unfortunately, I said, it seems like history is suggesting that what was initially a method in the Western world to get people when they were going and exploring and planting their flags, the different European powers, a process that's, that the Spanish used very well was um, to create, um, get people to walk in an indentured manner for some time to be able to establish the, these new lands that we have found for some queen or king in Europe, gradually evolved into a concept of looking for people to go do those things. And before record shows in the 1400s and uh, all that, that that process required almost like a commission from the courts and queen's court, the king's and queen's court. And even this exploration that people here in Sierra Leone of Pedro da Sintra in 1462, um, he and a couple of others had got commissions earlier to come explore. In fact, uh, the island, the, um, the, the small island um, of um, Cape Verde was as far as the Spanish used to go in the 1400s, but they had one or two Spanish who got commission to go further. So it was controlled. You, uh, you had to account for your use of persons. But how did the 15th century Spanish royal court commission system of indentured service by persons, prisoners of war, become something so much darker? Well, what was initially a combination of exploration and a Eurocentric interest in securing labour to satisfy growing and irresistible appetites for commercial opportunities, advancements in sailing technology and the proliferation of gunpowder all created a perfect storm of events that would become the transatlantic slave trade. That origins of the Edmonds prior to, the, to Virginia 
is another part that has been researched. It's not the pretty part because it's talking about enslaved people and enslavers and their wills and their books of shipping and buying enslavement. I gloss over that because I think um, the real story is to appreciate where everybody came from in, in Africa and probably and tell the story of what led to this um, Atlantic slave trade. And in there is the story of how the different African kingdoms, the wars and among the different African kingdoms set the motion in stage for the slavers to benefit. To see a time-lapse representation of slave ships crossing the Atlantic during the periods of 1650 and 1750, and perhaps better appreciate the sheer scale of these crimes, visit slavevoyages.org. You can find the link in your show notes. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Marianne Morgan, and you're listening to Zion at 2.30, a podcast series on the living history of a little Methodist church in Freetown, Sierra Leone. From Kingdom Wars and the Middle Passage to 1792, the founding of Zion in the province of Freedom. Thank you for taking this journey with us. Triumphantly won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Cause all I ever have redemption songs, redemption songs. When we talk about our African American and Nova Scotian ancestors as heroes, this is not conjecture. It is perhaps an understatement, no better exemplified in the lives of David and Anne Edmonds. The names of Anne and her husband David were recorded in the 1784 Muster of Negro Families, Nova Scotia, Canada, just months after the end of the British-American Independence War. They were among many others seeking refuge, escaping re-enslavement. Anne and David had um, five kids in total. They had one kid before they left Virginia um, before um, 1783, and they had two more in Canada. Um, they also, when they got to Sierra Leone, they had their final, their final two. Um, they, they, had, they had Martha, Anne, and Nancy um, um, in, this, in, in the Americas, and then they end up having Elizabeth and James in Sierra Leone. So it was four daughters and one son. Uh, we have um, two of the daughters being married to the Spilsbury and the Cooper families. James eventually appears to have left Sierra Leone. And so that explains the absence of the Edmonds family um, after the mid um, 1800s. I could imagine that was a celebration because they know they were going on to um, pursue um, their own their liberty and um, 
evolve their community free of these enslaved laws and practices that we are holding them back. So I kind of I always feel that Christmas story is in um, December of 1791 and their letter that recorded it in time um, just let us know how optimistic they were even in the face of what they had gone through. What most people don't appreciate by the time those two gentlemen and all and the hundred, 1,200 people from all the different communities in Canada, when all of them met in Halifax in January of 1792, before they took off thereabouts, uh, they had built communities. They had, they actually had the list of professions and um, skills and trades um, um, that were registered beside their name. Farms, they had what it took to build a community a city. When they arrived in Freetown, the Edmonds and other Nova Scotian settlers once again started to work to accomplish what they'd done just a decade before. When against all the odds, they established Birchtown and other free settlements of ethnic Africans to be left behind and inhabited by the Jamaican Maroons that arrived later. They were a diverse group of skilled men and women and they had what it took to build a community. There was also something else that existed, the Cerulean Company, that entity that wanted to direct the evolution of the city for the sake of trade, and it had its own um, agenda. In Sierra Leone, the new arrivals had created leadership structures and systems of organising themselves. Their militant insistence on self-governance and autonomy from the British authorities culminated in the drafting of their own constitution in September 1800. Then they go on to be part of the early administration and trying to walk the fine line between what the church aspiration is and what the economic aspirations were for the, um, um, the British-led Australian company. Those things, those fights, those tensions shaped the, the landscape in Freetown. Their petitions and declaration would result in a siege in Freetown involving elected political leaders and activists of the Nova Scotians community, referred to as the Hundred Doors and Tithing Men. This conveniently for the Sierra Leone Company coincided with the arrival of the Trilony Town Jamaican Maroons to whom the company likely offered a Fahustian deal, recasting the early settlers' righteous position as some sort of rebellion. The ensuing upheaval of Maroons against Nova Scotians would leave David Edmonds wounded. Edmonds, a company man at the time, found himself having to take sides in a very difficult situation. This was one of several instances where he would find himself in such a position where his loyalty to his community and to his family would be tested to a breaking point. The Nova Scotians had organized themselves to a point since their arrival in 1792 through petitions and, and um, efforts on their own, independent efforts, got their constitution ready, put it up on the streets of Freetown to start to live and to manage themselves but the Sierra company would not have that and ended up um, what was um, supposed to be a, a declaration of their independence 
became what was recorded as a rebellion again. Um, that whole thing came to a, to a standstill where um, the Syrian company side and the um, and those who were on the uh, settler side came to a, a, what was considered an arms, armed standoff um, somewhere around where we now call uh, between Circular Road, Kisi Street, um, Regent Road area. One of those brooks that um, uh, we have in that area it became a standoff there. It uh, turned out that for the Maroons who had gone through the same journey from Jamaica to Canada, spent some time in Canada, finally had, had come to the same realization that the Nova Scotians had come to decided that we would like to go to Freetown because we had the, the folks who occupying this location that we are occupying in Canada, they had left for Sierra Leone and would like to go there too. So they chose, they, they went. But when they arrived, the British made um, the ultimate divide and conquer. He asked the Maroons if they were to put down this rebellion that's a standstill for them, and they would give them lands and give them a couple of other, the same things they had, they, they had promised the Nova Scotians. Uh, the Maroons were pretty much um, organized as military, military companies they're fighting these in Jamaica. So you could imagine it was not, it was a no brainer. The, uh, that's how David Edmonds got his, uh, that whole um, um, squab, squabble of fight is how David Edmonds got his uh, injuries. But you can imagine since then, since that 1800s, uh, for another, uh, almost another generation, Nova Scotians and uh, were completely independent of the Syrian company and had nothing to do with the Maroons. The Maroons at that time were the, were, um, they benefited from the favors of the Syrian company, which gave them a, um, a footing. But by a generation after that, it was clear they also they were all on the same side and realized the British company and the British colony, which was about to be formed then, um, were all not. Um, we're against the interest of land of securing land without any ties to it, having freehold lands. The prosperous community drew much interest from abroad. Between 1810 and 1812, renowned entrepreneur Paul Kufi, the son of Ruth Moses, and an ex-enslaved Ashanti man named Kofi Slocum, heard about the evolution of free people in the settler community of Freetown, and through his connections, secured U.S. presidential approval to make a trade journey there. It was a journey of many firsts, most significantly of which was when joined by AME Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, a conference was organised in Sierra Leone, out of which emerged the Friendly Society of Sierra Leone. A document bearing the names and signatures of Paul Kofi, David Edmonds and others of the Zion community. In the first journey, uh, Paul Coffey actually bought a house on East Street and he left it in, and he left David Edmonds in charge of it. He was able to make the first journey um, to take back goods to sell. And on his return journey, he brought um, up to about 15 families. But that was a case of the first set of American families coming to join other settlers in Freetown. Unfortunately, 
war between Britain and America in the 1812 period um, interrupted trade, interrupted sea traffic, um, and um, that resulted in a, the second cargo that Paul Coffey was taking back to the United States to be seized because um, nobody was supposed to be trading with any British colony. But unfortunately, he had left before the war started. And when he returned, his goods were considered contraband. The Edmonds did well in their new life, and they were prosperous. One of their daughters, Anne, lived into the 1870s and was among the five age ladies mentioned by ABC's Sipthorpe in his record of Zion's anniversary celebration around that time. She was wealthy and owned a considerable amount of land around Charlotte Street. But Anne's story might have ended quite differently. Captured in the Black Loyalist by James Walker, under the chapter Ransom Sinners, Walker describes how Anne, the daughter of the prominent and religious David and Anne Edmonds, was pregnant by an unnamed white man and gave birth on August 10, 1807. Whether consensual or not, the pregnancy and the baby were rejected by her parents and having given the baby up, the Sierra Leone Company governor at the time alleged the missing baby was not given away but killed and he sought to prosecute Anne Edmonds with no evidence to support his charge of murder. He went to the extent of offering money for information and erecting gallows at Fort Thornton, now State House, in anticipation of finding her guilty. This same governor, who were choosing not to acknowledge by name, was a divisive figure who fostered policies that pit the Jamaican Maroons and liberated African communities against the more Nova Scotia community. Unhappy about the latter's continual challenge of the practices and position of the Sierra Leone Company. Meanwhile, on the other side of town from the Edmonds were Thomas Morgan, his wife, and son. The Morgans were part of the Trollini Town Jamaican Maroon community, mostly Africans of the Ashanti tribe in Ghana, who had been taken to Jamaica but never yielded to enslavement by the British. For a century, the Maroons fought back and frustrated the British until both sides eventually signed treaties that expressed their respective conditions to coexist on the island. Under the resolution of the Third and Last Maroon War, the Trollini Town Maroons were ambushed after being invited to town for a celebration of the truce reached. 568 in number were forced under the threat of the British guns into three ships and instructions given to the captains to sail towards Nova Scotia. Mavis Christine Campbell transcribed in her book Back to Africa, George Ross and the Maroons from Nova Scotia to Sierra Leone, a list of belongings recorded for Thomas Morgan on a voyage from Halifax, Nova Scotia, May 31, 1800, to Freetown on September 30, 1800 on HMS Asia. List of his belongings recorded for Thomas Morgan and John Morgan in Nova Scotia Archive CO217-74. On voyage from Halifax, Nova Scotia, May 31, 1800 to Freetown, on September 30th, 1800, on HMS Asia. Box 1. Five coats, six vests, 11 hands, 
15 gowns, 9 petticoats. Box 2. 9 shirts, 1 apron, 6 hats, 7 pair trousers, 7 shoes, 7 stockings, 1 pot, pans. Box 3. 1 gridiron, 4 axes, 5 blankets, 2 boxes trinkets. Whether a true love story or a savvy political move or a delicate balance of the two, the marriage between Anne Edmonds, the daughter of Nova Scotia settlers, and John Leedon Morgan, the son of Jamaican maroon settlers, was a notable event in February 1809. Beginning to bridge the divide and helping to heal the hurt between those two founding communities of Freetown. Under the combined powers and pressures of the people united and past directors of the Sierra Leone Company, Anne Edmonds Morgan, though she was still declared guilty by the administration of the day, received a commuted sentence from death to banishment from the colony. Months later, the governor will be recalled to England and within a year after Anne and John's marriage, the new governor overturned the ruling and Anne Edmonds Morgan returned home in 1810 to a joyful Nova Scotia community. This event sealed not only marital bonds, but the first necessary alliances of the Nova Scotian and Jamaican Maroon communities against emerging colonial rule. The son of Anne Edmonds and John Needham Morgan was named Thomas Graham Morgan. He would marry Peggy Nicole, who was associated with Cathedral Church. The story of the Edmonds um, from the ancestors who made, did the Middle Passage to the ancestors who, who, who uh, toiled in the um, plantations, to those who bravely escaped during the Civil War, tried to establish free community under enslaved practices and laws, or to making the difficult decision to ab ex abandon any hopes and dreams in the Americas and restart in Freetown and do it again against the will, the um, uh, against the inertia or the, against the um, obstacles put by the colonial uh, aspirations of the colonials. I believe that journey, every aspect of that journey shows strength, resilience, fortitude, and in its visions, because today, we, seven generations later, we record a lot of educated folks in our family own free land and uh, doing um, interesting things. It was because of a decision that 1,196 folks, some of which were families Zion, made that heroic decision to cross the Atlantic in 16 small ships and start over again. know that story about our lives starting over again with hopes and i think that's what zion means to um, in this story that hope that eternal hope of finding that zion every time if you joined us in episode two 
You'll recall in that episode that descendants of Nora Archer were gathered around the only known surviving family photo of her. She's the woman wearing spectacles, seated at the centre of the photograph. The son of Thomas Graham Morgan and Peggy Nicol, commonly called Grandma Peggy, was also named Thomas Graham Morgan. And he would go on to marry Nora Archer of Zion Wilberforce Street Church. And they were going to have several children. And so seven generations later, we're all here to tell the story.